0: We will hear argument next in number 22-2249, Lambro versus United States. Whitcomb,
1: thank you. Um, if it pleases the court, I'm Joe Whitcomb, and I represent uh, Mr. Jason Lambro and similarly situated uh, contractors. We argue, putative employees of what was formerly Voice of America, than the uh, Governor's Board of Broadcasters. Um, in this case, <clears throat> the case arises from obviously Mr. Lambro and those similarly situated to him <coughs> arguing, or the, the as the complaint alleges that. They were all collectively misclassified. They were flawed. So,
0: just can I just get one fact um, clarified, if I can? Um, you said, I think, in your complaint that in I think your words were early twenty eighteen, um, you started making the contract with um, Voice of America or whoever it was, the agency, through um, the company Wayne Industries LLC. Um, Do you know more precisely what early 2018 means?
1: I I don't – standing here today, I don't know um, the exact date. I also know that it was at – but I do know that it was at the government's suggestion.
0: Right. I guess here's just what I'm trying to piece together. So um, the Court of Federal Claims on Statute of Limitations grounds um, dismissed and you haven't appealed this, um, any claim predating January 28, 2018, which is three years before the filing of the complaint. Um, I guess I, part of what I want to understand is whether there is any period of time at issue here when the contract was between the agency and a human being, namely Mr. Lambrough, or whether it's only... Between the agency and this artificial entity, namely the limited liability company, uh, or, or whether right, and early 2018 doesn't quite tell me whether it's before or after January 28th. And I, I'm, I'm not suggesting it's it, what significance it has, but there's a lot of uncertainty, at least in my mind, about a lot about this case, and that's one of them.
1: And, and Your Honor, to your point, there, there's a, there are, in our estimation, about 750 putative class members that are similarly situated um, to Mr. Lambro based on just a cursory search of USA spending and looking at the agency and looking at the NAICS codes and looking at, and fortunately for me, and and this oral argument, this court also uh, happens to be the court of review related to all things government contracting. So, so this, this is you have about seven hundred and fifty putative class members just working for Voice of America, who were all, none of whom, by the way, responded to a Fed Biz ops solicitation to compete for a government contract. Um the, the idea is that these folks and we don't know exactly how they came by the jobs, all seven hundred fifty, and we know that Mr. Well,
0: Lambert. I mean, right now we have just Mr. Lambert. We, yes. we don't have a certified class. Is that I don't even remember, is that a thing in the in the Court of Federal Claims?
1: I'm sorry. I, I do they questions. do
0: certified class actions?
1: Yes. And yeah. there
0: has not been a certified class, right? the, the class So I'm just project. right now interested in Mr. Lambro and, and maybe you just can't tell me whether the entire period at issue here, the relationship was, that is, everything um, January 28th, 2018 forward, whether the contract between um, the agency, um, was a co- and, and uh, w- whether it was with Mr. Lambro or whether it was with a company, namely an LLC. I,
1: I don't know the answer to that question, Your okay. no. um, I don't know the. Um, we never got that far in the pleadings. It was just a function of Mr. Lambro started his relationship with the government almost 20 years ago, um, and he did, did so as an individual. Um, we, we know that the facts will demonstrate that Mr. Lambro went in and interviewed with a hiring. Uh, Person based on a, uh, a introduction by his father. I mean, again, this was not him responding to a BPA or, or anything of that nature. And and again, this. The, and, do,
0: and do you claim? I, I don't think you quite argue um, that um, he actually did have a personal services contract under um, FAR thirty seven point one oh four.
1: That did not happen. Uh, Voice of America did not bring the. Um, personal services contract to bear until late, until after this claim was filed in January 2021, or, or it was even okay, just so, before, so we, just after. You, you, yes.
0: You're not asserting yes. he actually had such a contract. Right? No, no. So, yeah. so, you are accepting for now that, putting aside the FLSA,
1: yes,
0: that um, there was no, congressionally authorized, um, creation. Of an employment relationship between the agency and um, Mr. Lambert. I, I don't know. And,
1: the, I don't know. If we're at the place where we concede that point. I think the government not
0: identified anything outside the FLSA that's, that that um, created that relationship. Well,
1: sure. Uh, we sure. Okay. We are, we don't we don't agree with the government that that the the word appointment in in uh, Title Five is as. Precisely defined as they are. I mean, it's it simply defi- it's in the definition section of Title Five. A, a federal employee is defined as someone who has right. been appointed.
0: I, 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 I just want to get the, the terms of the question that right. that we're dealing with here. It, it's absolutely plain by virtue of FAR thirty seven point one oh four that you don't need to have an appointment. That's right. You need some congressional authorization to create right. a uh, employment relationship with the with an
1: agency. Right. right? Yes, well, arguably, employment relations, and, and
0: I think your argument is, um, FLSA does it on its
1: own. It does. That is our argument. Okay. We we argue, and, and we think that the government's the implications of the government's arguments go far beyond what they briefed in their in their documents, or and far beyond. I mean, the implications here are vast. <laughs> I mean, the government's argument in its response brief is. Can I, I,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt. You know, implications don't come first statutory, stat textual, disciplined um, legal arguments come first. So start with the text and, and explain how you get to the conclusion that you want to get to, sure. and then you can say, and the consequences of doing otherwise would be terrible, and they're going to say the opposite on their side.
1: No, no, clearly. So the FLSA, as we started, and the presumption is the FLSA defines employee. And it, it defines employee as those who do work, and it, and it it captures in that group those who work for the federal government. Now, the government's position is like, well, wait, wait, there's this carve out. There's this requirement. And, and, and understand, and the court already knows, the economic realities test that we're here arguing about was not, it appears in statute, doesn't appear in any statutes. It is a common law created doctrine to combat the defense of, wait, FLSA protections, just like here, FLSA protections don't apply. We never hired them. We never made them our employees. That's what commercial companies have been doing for time immemorial, right? And this is the first time that a misclassification case that we that anyone's been able to find that has been brought against the government and said, hey, you, you've deprived these employees, these what we argue are computer employees, of the common protections of overtime protection, um, all kinds of things. They can't collectively bargain. All of the benefits that would be that would be. be it an
2: may be helpful, though, to take um, the good suggestion of Judge Toronto and, to the extent you have it there, pull out the actual language and talk from there, as opposed to talking more in general.
1: No, I appreciate. That. Thank you, Honor. Right. So, you, I mean, your, you, your you,
3: argument is is that the FLSA provides its own specific definition for the context of FLSA. That's right. And that definition of. Uh, anybody that is employed by the federal government or anybody right. that's employed by an employer, brought more broadly, has to be uh, an individual that is suffered or permitted to work by an employer, whether that employer is a federal employer or a non-federal employer. Is that your
1: that, argument? That is precisely our argument.
3: So Section 203G is the key provision in the FLSA that defines what it means to be employed to suffer or permit work.
1: That, that is correct. That, that is, and that's then our, the
3: Supreme Court and other courts took that provision and understood it to be, let's go with something called an economic realities test. That's, that's what suffer or permit work is really about. It's about trying to figure out what is the economic reality between this individual and that employer.
1: That, that's correct, Your Honor. So. This is – and this is brought not just in FLSA context. As we briefed, it's also brought in Title Seven claims. It's brought in Rehabilitation Act claims. When when I'm a – when I – Those am, statutes
3: don't have this particular definition for being employed,
1: right? They, most of them point to the FLSA uh, at, for the definition of an employee. Title Seven points to, to, uh, to FLSA. Rehabilitation Act points to FLSA. Um, the only thing that doesn't point specifically to FLSA – it's the government's argument, is Title V. Title V does not point specifically to FLSA. Title V says an employee of the federal government has somebody who's been appointed.
0: Where does, we, where, where does Title Seven point to the FLSA?
1: It, uh, I'm sorry, I don't have that reference handy. I know that the courts that have uh, ruled in favor of punitive employees in Title Seven cases have ruled that, and those cases are encapsulated in our brief. The, the case, that I'm into my... In my rebuttal time, but the the argument is, is precisely as Judge Chen put it. Argument is that the FLSA defines employees very broadly as to, as it relates to those who are afforded the protections of the of the Fair Labor Standards Act, and it says anybody who who works or permitted to work, suffered to work, um, so forth, by anybody, including the federal government. Um, so
0: why one? Why and and that um, suffer to work. Um, provision is, what, item number three in the OPM regulation, with OPM having been delegated authority to implement the FLSA as it applies to federal employees, right? Right. So why would not one read that in the federal employment context to mean – to um, rely on the general requirement of congressional authorization to create – a employment relationship with the federal government, so that you, you suffer, so that um, suffering and um, permitting to work is not, by itself, um, sufficient, without the congressional authorization coming from elsewhere.
2: Well, you... and, and
0: I'm, I'm asking this because it because it does seem to me right now that that's what the government's argument comes down to.
1: Well, I think Your Honor, Your Honor pointed out earlier that clearly under FAR Part 37, that's not required. FAR Part 37 allows for for PSCs, for personal services. So that
0: con- With congressional authorization. So, of course, that covers
1: But, but congressional authorization, Your Honor, as you already know, it, it applies to everything, including procurement. I mean, you can't contract with, a, with an individual. Congressional
0: authorization to create an employment relationship, which is why I think there's a 37104B uh, or something says – one of the subsections of the FAR provision says um, you may enter into these contracts only to the extent there's a express or special or specific or something congressional authorization.
1: And, and they're also, by the way, Your Honor, to your and, point. And
0: basically the rest of, of how you get to be um, a federal employee is through various forms of appointment. Right. The big one in for 2105.
1: Right. But, but what we're arguing here, Your Honor, is that the government sidestepped all of the rules. They, they, they sidestepped the procurement rules because none of these positions were ever competed publicly the way they were supposed to under the FAR.
0: I'm sorry, how does that affect the statutory analysis we're engaging in right now? The, the reason is,
1: is because by, by depriving Mr. Lambro and those like him of any employment relationship with anyone, he wasn't just deprived of an employment relationship with the government. He was deprived of an employment <coughs> relationship with anyone. Mr. Lambro couldn't go to work and talk to a fellow audio tech about how much money that audio tech made without running afoul of anti-collusion provisions. And, and, and he couldn't – Mr. Mr. Lambro couldn't quit his job without triggering a termination for default and excess procurement problems. Mr., it's not just that he I'm, didn't have I'm, a I'm,
0: – I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite confused what point you're making here that, that – Addresses the statutory question. Part of me is hearing you saying you're giving extra reasons why he plainly was not a federal employee.
1: I'm giving reasons why the withholding withholding the appointment was illegal. They withheld an appointment in order to sidestep the requirements of the FLSA and all of the other trappings of employment that would have that would have been benefited. Had the government instead gone out and put this procurement to two or three government contractors and allowed all 750 putative employees.
0: Is it it your position that if somebody um, qualifies under, to use um, Judge Chen's uh, shorthand, the economic realities test that implements the suffer and permit, or permit provision, that that person is a federal employee, not only for FLSA purposes, but for other purposes?
1: Yes. Without qualification. Oh. Yes, Your Honor. That is... That is the only – because, again, according to the government's own arguments, that Mr. Lambrough would enjoy Title VII protections but not FLSA protections. He would enjoy Rehabilitation Act protections but not uh, NRLA protections. That it's, it would be preposterous to assume that, this, that Mr. Lambrough would, would enjoy half of the suite. The
3: definition of employee or federal employee in the FLSA applies in every other context. Be outside of the FLSA? In every, your argument?
1: is our, our argument is in, in every place in which employee is not defined or points to the FLSA, then the governing provision of protections are for what is an employee would fall under the FLSA. The, the
2: I thought you agreed with Judge Chen earlier, and I thought you really said, because we're talking about the FLSA context, we should look at the FLSA for what employee means. Now you're making, I think, a different argument.
1: I'm saying that there are statutes... You're making
3: an argument I don't think you need to make for purposes of this narrow appeal about what does this particular... Is this person potentially eligible for FLSA
1: benefits? What I'm doing is I'm trying to point to the the lower court's decision, which is... Appoint period. The court's um, a position was categorical. Its opinion was categorical. Appointment is necessary for employment, period. That was, it, it did, and it, it's, what I would argue is that saying that, uh, if, if it affirm, if the court affirms, if this court affirms the lower court's ruling, an appointment is necessary for employment, then Mr. Lambro and no one like him would enjoy any of the benefits of employment including Title VII protections, NRLA protections, the Rehabilitation Act protections. It has far, re- far more reaching implications than just the uh, FLSA, but certainly as it relates to the protections afforded by the FLSA, the FLSA says suffer to work and you're afforded these minimum wage protections. And the government's position is no, it doesn't apply to federal employees unless there is an appointment. Does that Does that add any clarity at all? It, I, the okay. argument is that the FLSA, define, for the purposes of the FLSA, defines employee. Can
0: I, can I ask you this? Um, in looking at the various cases that have been cited, Title VII, um, the Medical Leave Act case, 501 of the Rehab Act, um, it wasn't clear to me that except for the D.C. Circuit decision in Spirides – Please put that to one side, which is Title Seven case. Right. Um, that there's any case in which the employee, one, you know, um, ended up being dubbed, yes, you are an employee for these purposes, um, or a case in which the government said um, you need to have a Title V or FAR or some Authorization, congressional authorization to create the employment relationship and economic realities, common law agency is not the right test. So when in those cases the court was going through these multi-factor kinds of things, it didn't actually have an argument going the other way and it repeatedly ruled for uh, for the defendant. So I'm trying to see how much of a judicial landscape is out there that says, "Oh, in other places, the government's argument here has been rejected." Except for Spirides, I'm just not sure that's true. That, uh, that's what I'd like help on.
1: So, so one, you're right, Your Honor. That, that this is the first time in our, in our, what we've been able to find, where the, in in it was a Title Seven case. In the federal marshal's cases out on the West Coast on the Ninth Circuit, it was presumed that the, those those people did not work directly for the federal government. They were all under the Rehab Act, and they were all working for another contractor, and they brought their claim against government. And it was just assumed under, under the economic realities test because, again, the actual tortfeasor in those instances was a government employee. It was a government employee who did something wrong. Again, if Mr. Lambrough goes into work tomorrow and somebody um, – propositions him for sexual favors in order to get work, he would be be bringing a a sexual harassment claim, and he would enjoy those benefits because the tortfeasor in that instance would be a government employee. But the case that they bring up, Jackson. Jackson is a a case where uh, Title V defines service members as not being federal employees, and the court goes in, in Jackson and says, and by the way, service members are not listed in the FLSA as employees. Uh, government employees are service right, members. The first, or not. the
0: first definition says civilian employees That's in right. military military department.
1: Right. Right. So Jackson's and then Jackson goes as, so far to say is hey we're not going to disturb this analysis of what is an employee and what isn't an employee we're only saying that in this context because Title V specifically defines military members as, as a carve out under Title V not under FLSA. I mean, we're, you, you. I think the court gets my point. Service members are not encapsulated in FLSA. We understand that the military can't be held to the bounds of keeping people from working overtime or paying overtime.
0: But all these other cases, as am I, I think you um, indicated, which is my impression from having read them, they just assume That's right. without deciding that uh, – the the test is one of the softer tests that have multi factors or maybe even common law agency, but not a test that uh, they never say we are considering an argument that says there needs to be you know formal congressional authorization outside the act that is um, allegedly violated.
1: That's right, and in the in the case we cite to in Social Security versus um, Social Security Administration versus the. Board, and I'm blanking on that, That case was decided by the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. That case only turned on the award of interest. The DC
0: Circuit or the local court? Uh, the DC Circuit.
1: The DC Circuit Court of Appeals. That case turned only on, it was 7,500 punitive employees that we don't get all of the facts as to sort of the lower case, and that's why we don't really unpack it a lot. Um, it, that case only turned on, it, there was an arbitration award for 7,500 um, Social Security employees. And the the issue decided by the U.S. Just by the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia was whether or not interest applied to attorneys' fees. That that was it. But the the presumption in that case was that the economic realities test applied because what what I believe I know about that case is it was relative to 7,500 uh, vo- uh, verbatim court, court reporters of the Social Security Administration who were misclassified. But that, again, it's not on the record. It's just all you can glean from the case is that. The district court or the court of appeals for the district for the District of Columbia applied the back pay act um, to all of the damages and the interest uh, application, all the damages except for interest on attorney's fees, which was deemed putative and not applicable to the government.
0: And when you say, I think as you have perhaps unnecessarily, I'm not quite sure that um, our ruling here that uh, Mr. Lambro was an employee would make him an employee of the federal government for all purposes. I, I think so suddenly he's gotta start paying into the FERS system, he's got to have money withheld for you know tax money withheld, maybe he's subject to the Federal Tort Claims Act, the whole <clears throat> hidden caboodle of everything that goes with being a federal employee?
1: I think that the government by withholding appointment or not or not Creating another mechanism for him. To, I think what we are stopping short of in saying this, and only this the government misclassified Mr. Lambro as an independent contractor, and in so doing, has damaged him in a multitude of different ways, to include withholding. But that sounds
3: a, like a different lawsuit. I it, mean, the lawsuit that you filed here was just about whether he's entitled to FLSA overtime pay.
1: That, that's not accurate. If you look at the Second Amendment complaint, uh, Your Honor, we actually talk about the host of benefits, including the ability. To, well, what's uh, the
3: nature of your appeal here?
1: Collectively, the nature of the appeal here is to overturn the lower court's order that appointment is necessary in order to to get any of the benefits of federal employment, including which to, to, get, to get the uh, benefits of the FLSA. And again, that's all that's encaps what's encapsulated in the lower court's complaint. Again, it wasn't dismissed for uh, inadequacy. It wasn't a technical t- or on futility. It was simply dismissed on 12b6 on the basis appointment is necessary in order to, to be afforded any of the rights of an employee. The court made a very sweeping announcement in its opinion that the FLSA did not apply to Mr. Lambrough because he was not an, appointment, an, an appointed employee of the government.
0: And I don't remember at this point, did the um, uh, Court of Federal Claims address the FAR um, provision 3710? It-
1: no, it, I, I don't, don't, think, I don't it think it did so. any more than dicta. It didn't actually issue an opinion relative to
0: – Right, because you didn't claim that you were actually an employee under that provision, just was, that you sure should have been.
1: Yeah, there was no – there is no tangible personal services contract under Far Part 37 that ever existed between Mr. Lambro and Voice of America until, you know, again, I think it was shortly before or shortly after this suit was filed. Okay.
0: Um, when you, when I will, we will restore your rebuttal time um, and we'll hear from Mr. Carhart now.
4: May hey, please the court. <clears throat> the trial court correctly dismissed Mr. Lambrough's complaint because he did not plausibly allege that he was an employee under the FLSA. Its decision should be affirmed. I think Judge, um, I'll start with Judge Toronto's um, question um, to Mr. Whitcomb about the government's position, which I think Judge Toronto articulated correctly. So our position is that um, there has to be some source of specific congressional authority creating an employment relationship. And what we've argued is that the FLSA is not that. What the FLSA is doing, as applied to federal employees, is to extend the benefits of the FLSA to those individuals who are already, those eligible individuals who are already um, employees under, under federal law.
0: And, to, and just to be clear, um, it would be incorrect to say appointment is always required to be a federal employee but right. rather be, and I't we know that because far right the far provision um, provides a non-appointment way of creating the employment relationship. So, what's needed is congressional authorization to create that relationship. You agree with that, right? Yes. Okay, so um, to be precise, and, and then then the big question is why doesn't the FLSA and
4: two hundred three G do that? Right. So, to be precise, you know, employment can mean different things in different contexts. So, being an, a personal services contractor. Uh, contrary to Mr. Whitcomb's arguments, doesn't necessarily mean you get all of the benefits of federal employment. Um, it entitles you to certain benefits though. And um, it's undisputed that once Mr. Mr. Lambro became a personal services contractor at the agency, he did receive pay under the FLSA. So that's that's not an issue of dispute between the parties. Um, as Do to you point, happen
0: to know the answer to my opening question about when the contract shifted from Lambro personally to Wayne, um, was it Wayne Industries or something?
4: If my if my recollection is correct, I looked into this a long time ago. I think there's a, a little bit of a gap between the, 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 the statute of limitations dismissal and when the contract came into effect. In any event, though, it's not in the record, such the court can okay. can decide that. Um, so um, to jump to to the the major question of why the 1974 amendments, the FLSA, don't create an employment relationship. Um, so essentially,
3: um, if first... If I were to p- just read um, Section 203, of the amendments under 1974 on their face, in isolation from anything and everything else that you may want to refer to, wouldn't the most logical reading be that um, the definition for what it means to be employed by the government is essentially the same as the definition for what it means to be employed by a other employer, a non-federal employer, So given that it would appear that the definition provided in 203G, employees including to suffer or permit work, would, would apply equally to in, for both non-federal employers and federal employers. The, the language, the symmetry of the language is the same. Any individual employed by an employer, any individual employed by the government. Well, and it
4: goes on, though, too. As a civilian in the military departments, as defined in Section 102 of Title V. I
3: don't see those phrases actually being decisive to the broader question of why doesn't this definition under 203G apply equally to both employers and then the government.
4: So first, Congress could have
3: just conflated the definition
4: of private sector and federal employees. So it didn't need to break out public employee as it did. Um, but when, it
0: need, I'm sorry. It needed to say which components of the federal government were going to be um, relevant, covered federal employers. And also, the, the one other thing it did was to put the civilian thing exp- expressly. But all the rest is just who the employer is.
4: No? So we so could have done that by amending the definition of employer, which is one of the things that the FLSA did. It, it originally, excuse me. One of the things that the 1974 amendments did. Originally, the United States was carved out from the definition of employer, um, and then the 1974 amendments removes that carve out. It could have, to the extent it wanted to you know, caveat the lim- the removal of the carve out, it could have done that in the definition of employer. Um, so that's that's one that's one point. Right. Um, I'm
3: still not sure why I I should. Uh, Block my view of 203G when I'm trying to interpret what does it mean to be any individual employed by the government. So
4: obviously a big part of our argument is the backdrop of existing law. I think, Your Honor, right, Judge Chen, you're asking about you're, you're, just the text. Yeah. And I understand that. I think that the reference to Title V is the other, the other part of the argument that's distinctive textually. Now the DC Circuit in Jackson v. Modley did look at similar text from Title Seven and found it distinct, or found it Significant that Congress was directing um, the, the readers
3: to Title Five. I guess what bothers me, though, it, in the FLSA amendment, is that the references to Title Five are extremely limited, to just the definitions for executive agency and military departments. I will and grant. Obviously, Congress could have gone further and said, and by the way, also how employees defined in Title Five, but it did not do that. It only limited references. Title V, just to these two small items, the definitions of what is an executive department, what is a military, a military department, and an executive agency. That's right, Judge
4: Chen. If, if, it, if it actually referred to the definition of employee, I don't
3: think we would be here today. Right, but, but I, the, I guess my concern is, is that the inference goes the other way. They, know, they knew full well about Title Five. We have to assume they understood the Supreme Court found that this that, – that what – kinds of employees that were covered by FLSA was truly expansive. They they said that it's difficult to imagine a more broad uh, definition of what an employee can be other than the one provided in the FLSA and yet for whatever reason, Congress elected to limit its references to Title V to just the definitions of military department executive agency.
4: So, so that does not distinguish this from the Jackson v. Modley case though. Which was considering very similar limited references to Title V in the context of Title VII, um, and thought that that was, that the fact the direction, uh, the direction to uh, Title V in Title VII was enough for the DC Circuit to go beyond the actual definitions themselves and look at the broader context of of Title VII and even look at the definition of, excuse me, broader context of Title V and even look at the definition of Title V. In of Title V's definition of employee, um, even though Title Seven did not refer to that, so te- textually, that would be the those would be the, the hooks that we would that we would rely on.
2: Um you by any precedent that requires appointment for individuals to be considered federal employees under the FLSA? I just want to level set on
4: that. So, so Judge Honeyman, your question is: Is there that requires uh, appointment to be considered? So, I, I think the answer is no. I think the – I would note, though, that sometimes courts use appointment as a shorthand for broader – meaning something broader about congressional authorization. So Teston has, uh, in the Supreme Court, even used appointment as a shorthand. Um, So so the trial court did talk about appointment, but it also cited this court's language to the effect that absence-specific authorization – I understand that's what the trial court meant when it talked about appointment. But, But we're not arguing that appointment is a sine qua non for FLSA employment. Um, We're arguing that appointment is the primary way that Congress creates employment relationships. Um, There are other ways,
3: but Congress has to do it. It, Um, Other ways could be through specific legislation. Of course. And so it's possible that the FLSA is an example of that kind of specific legislation. Yes, absolutely. Your view, of course, is no, they they need, if they were going to do that, they needed to do it much more clearly than they did because... In, you know, aside from the textual arguments you just presented, you think there's some bigger backdrop understanding of what it means to be a federal employee that just sort of is like this bigfoot imprint over anything and everything that's set here in the FLSA, because the FLSA, in your view, just isn't clear enough.
4: Essentially, that's that's right. A- and what, what's the
3: principle that um, even if there's an apparently clear definition of what it means to be an employee, including a federal employee in a statute, uh, it can still be big-footed and overwhelmed by this broader but a little bit vaguer understanding of what it means to be a federal employee. So, so we respectfully disagree that, that the definition of employee is clear. Um,
4: we, we think that you have to look at the, the, the concept of federal employment, um, which Congress was referring to here, and uh, has a special – it does have a special meaning. It's always had a special meaning. You see some indications in the legislative history of that, um, in addition to all the cases that preceded and and post-dated this case. Um, So so our our argument is that – I guess
3: those understandings of being a federal employee are somehow more special and more important than, um, you know, more common law understandings of what it means to be an employee, which the Supreme Court has repeatedly said – are discarded and put to the side in the FLSA because the FLSA went out of its way to create a very special, aggressively broad definition for purposes of the FLSA. It, it did for in the, in the 1938 amendments,
4: um, and then in the 1974 amendments, Congress uh, creates a, a different definition for federal employees. Doesn't use the general definition of, of employee, um, and in our view, that's what, that's a hint I'm as sorry to. Sorry, say that again. So instead of using uh, the definition of employee in E1, which is any individual employed by an employer, it uses the definition for federal employees in E1, or excuse me, E2A. Uh, so it says any individual employed by the government of the United States as a civilian in the military departments in the, any executive right, agencies. But then,
0: but then the, it, the critical word there is employed, which then gets a definition of several subsections down in G.
4: Well, I would say the whole phrase is is significant. The fact that it was that the, this definition was carved out of the general definition of employee, C- Congress would have understood that there's something special about being an employee of the United States. But what's
3: scary is you're asking us to read the term employed by in E1 differently from employed by in E2. I
4: I, I think it does mean something different in the federal government context. To be employed by the
3: federal government is different. It, it requires certain formalities. But there's a, a definition for employee right here in the FLSA. That, that, that's you can see what my problem is. I keep going over it and maybe I'm a little dense but I, I, we have a definition for employee here in the in the statute. You're asking me to look away from it for purposes of E2 even though it's structured symmetrically to the language in E1. So the, the, it,
4: it doesn't stop. The, the, first of all, the definition doesn't stop there. So we're looking for indications of Congress's intent. The fact that it then goes on to talk about Title V, that's one indication that Congress had a specific.
2: definition doesn't stop there? I'm sorry. I, I might have missed something you were just saying.
4: So, so e, e, uh, to section 203 E2A does not stop with employed by. So it goes on to say any individual employed by the government of the United States as a civilian in the military departments as defined in Section 102 of Title V. And again, that, that language, very similar language, was enough for the D.C. Circuit to think that Congress was directing the reader to Title V as a whole and incorporating concepts from Title V into, into its definitions in Title but, it, I
0: mean, Jackson had less um, to do – than I think you need to do that is the reference there it didn't have obviously it didn't have the word civilian in it or the case wouldn't have arisen it just said that was when an employee in, in well, I guess I had the, the language um, employees or applicants for employment in military departments as defined in title V, 102 mm-hmm. and the D.C. Circuit said um, well look at what um, it means to be um, a military department under Title V, and you look at the title of the 1966 recodification of all of Title V, and it says civilian employees. And then you look at other parts, and you get um, um, civilian, not other things. But then it carefully said it, it it didn't have anything like 203G to be, I don't know, overriding, to, and that's the problem here, that on the, the, the expression employed by, we actually have a, two, a FLSA definition. And this language is not easy to read as doing anything other than two things. One, um, saying who this subunit is within the federal government, and for the military one, saying civilian. But the rest, it's not changing what it
4: means to be um,
0: employed.
4: So there was, a com- there was another complexity in, in Jackson, too, which was you know, there's a definition of employee that doesn't distinguish between uh, federal, sec- federal sector workers and private sector workers. So you know, th- that made the case somewhat harder, but I, I take your point. Um, it's a different statutory scheme. Um, but, am- but you're
0: also right that the D.C. Circuit said there's this reference to Title V, and so we're going to look a little bit broadly in Title V for an answer to the question. And I think that's what I, I, I take it—that's your argument here too. That's the right. second reference to Title Five, the 105 reference, also says kind of look at Title Five, even though it's not—you would agree—not in fact restricted to being a Title Five employee.
4: It's not yes, it's not restricted to be a Title Five employee. Um, that's, I, I, that's
0: what makes this. But
4: difficult. but, but it—it's alluding. I understand. I understand your question. It's alluding to, to concepts of. Of federal employment law, distinctive to federal employment law, which leads us to think that that's what Congress had on its mind. When you combine that with, um, you know, all of the cases that that say, you know, you, you, you have to be appointed to a position to get the benefits of that position, um, and you have to, in, in, in the absence of some specific statutory authority. So, what what under Mr. Lambros' reading, what the FLSA is doing? is creating a really significant expansion of what it means to be federal employee a federal employee for pay purposes.
2: Do you um, that we do consider any sort of legislative intent to, for you to win in this
4: case? So I, I don't think the idea that the backdrop of existing law Congress legislates against the backdrop of existing law I take that to be a, 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 a canon related to the language I and mean, we under, we assume that Congress means when it means when it says something that has an established meaning it means that. So I think you know, you, you can consider that without looking at Congress's intent. We do cite some legislative history, which I think supports our view that there's a baseline assumption that these these employees were these are federal employees already. Um, but can, I, I don't can, can you
0: remind me what that is.
4: So, so there was there was um, there was a complaint from or there was an argument from the Civil Service Commission that if we add federal employees to the FLSA, is this it'll reflected confuse. reflected
0: in the big House report in '74. I, yes, yeah.
4: that's right. And, and and the the Civil Service Commission said this could confuse the administration of the law because these are so federal did, employees.
0: I thought, but I thought that the, the committee's response was to say, well, we're going to give um, I guess OPM what's OPM now, namely Civil Service Commission. You can you don't have to follow the Department of Labor blindly. You get to exercise some discretion about this. The, and and the regulation that exercises that discretion just repeats this two
4: or three G phrase, right? So. That, so, right, that's generally right, but the, the bat, the, the, the basis for, the, or the premise for what the committee's response was, was, you know, these individuals are already covered by Title V, but, as, you know, along the lines of what you, your honor just said, um, you, you know, you have to, you can resolve that consistent with DOL regulations. Did you have a particular ex- quote? I mean, at least when I was looking at that report, I was looking for something
0: that said with, whatever one would make of it, said with something like specificity, uh, who who qualifies as a federal employee being covered is determined by other provisions outside this act that we are um, uh, enacting. I'm sorry, I'm I'm,
4: I'm not
0: trying to Something where the House committee said, and I didn't find it, when we are extending the FLSA protections to federal employees, who qualifies as a federal employee is defined elsewhere.
4: So, so uh, there's nothing beyond and what's by in elsewhere, our elsewhere, I mean
0: outside the FLSA, FLSA, not outside the 1974
4: amendments. Right. There's nothing outside of what we quoted in our brief that okay. I can point the court to.
3: Um, is it the government's view that uh, if someone enters into a personal services contract with the government under part 37 they're covered by the FLSA so that that's the there it's undisputed that that's what would have happened that did happen to Mr. Okay. Lambro here so I, I guess for someone like Mr. Lambro, at least when before he had a, I guess a contract with the Voice of America that it, it wasn't a personal services contract and he wasn't appointed I'm just wondering how many other people are like that uh inside the federal government. I'm, I'm just wondering what are the – what's the scale of consequences if we were to conclude here, no, FLSA doesn't require an appointment for uh, someone to be considered and em- to be employed by the government in an executive agency as that term is used in the FLSA. So
4: if, I think you're – just on you're talking about non-personal services contractors sure. like Mr. Yes. Mr. Lambro. I haven't seen any data on that. I know there are um, – you know, several hundred in in his, in his sort of position, at the time covered by the complaint, There are much there are fewer now. But uh, there were several there were it's in the hundreds. Um, but this case has arisen in other con- this type of case has arisen in other contexts. The Court of Federal Claims. There's a postal contractor um, who sued in Diaz. There was a um, a Navy child care worker, excuse me, in Petzloff. So there are other
3: contexts in which it arises. I just haven't seen any data that shows how wide, widespread it is. But as far as you understand, it's it's not uncommon and it's legal. It's as far as
4: I understand, it's not uncommon and it's That's it's legal. Yes. The
0: what's not uncommon?
4: To, to to have a relationship like this, uh, the, the 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 relationship that Mr. Lambro had, based on just based on those cases. I, again, I haven't seen any data beyond the cases. Um, I would note though that you know, these amendments were enacted in 1974. Um, this is coming to light pretty late. Uh, there's there's you know, a, number, a lot of practice, including this court's decision in Guevara, um, that has rejected these, ty- these, these, these types of arguments. And there haven't been many claims that have really, um, that, mis- that Mr. Uh, uh, Whit- that Whitcomb could, has pointed to, that suggest that there were widespread sort of misunderstanding about this. Um, so you know, the, the, at some point, the practice of the government comes into play as well. Um, and, and you know this is ultimately a, a, you know it's a question of whether Congress waived its sovereign immunity. Um, so our, our view would be Congress doesn't do that lightly, and um, you would expect, given how longstanding the traditions at issue are here, that there, that Congress would have done so much more explicitly than it did, A and B that it, there'd be some um, you know post 1974, Developments that would suggest that people understood Congress to be doing what Mr. Lambro suggests—that um, you know, the agency here hired Mr. You know the, the agencies agencies are allowed to hire non-personal services contractors pursuant to their um, uh, general contracting authority. So um, there is a potential that a lot of agencies, if, if Mr. Lambro is correct, a lot of agencies were using that authority, uh, accruing liabilities that. You know, they didn't really have reason to understand, in our view, were accruing as to the FLSA. Um, so, you know, that would be, uh, you know, concerning um, implication of, of Mr. Lambros' argument. I see him far can, over can my you, time. Can,
0: can you address um, what um, I, guess I, I guess it's a question that I uh, discussed a little bit with um, with Mr. Whitcomb, these various other cases, the FMLA cases, Title VII, again, putting aside um, the 501 Rehab Act, um, I forget what there's uh, one other statute in play. I didn't see the government making this argument in those cases. Um, and I wonder what to make of that. Um, and, and in the FMLA case, in, in the uh, to, uh, DDC, government seemed to actually be making something of an opposite argument about a period of time for the relevant FMLA provision, where he was clearly an independent contractor saying, well, he was really an employee, so it should count. So it, it makes me wonder how I don't know, dramatic the consequences would be of,
4: saying we just think 203G obliged? So um, at the starting point, I would say um, not all statutes are the same, and there might be reasons to argue different statutes differently. So the the, the Rehab Act, I think, uses the ADA's definition. I don't think that uh, distinguishes between federal employees and private sector employees. And and the statutes have different purposes. So the Supreme Court's explained employee means different things in different contexts. So there may be good reasons to, to not make arguments in particular right, but cases. I
0: guess my difficulty with that um, level of general argument is that I don't think you I think the only way you could win this case is if you have a you know a, a logical structure that says everybody knows what's necessary to become a federal employee. That is to create a employment relationship with the federal government, basically appointment. There can be other congressional authorizations, but there is a – such a long history of formalities and whatnot. You need something really special to displace that. And I don't – and the kind of argument you're making about how, well, discrimination is one thing, and that doesn't seem to me to do it, to uh, – just – at that level, unless there's something in those other statutes that says, for purposes of FMLA or for purposes of Title Seven, an employee even of the federal government shall be such and such something.
4: So the legal principle we're relying on is specific to employee pay. So always the the cases that we're talking about, the Federal Circuit cases, testing, they're saying, you know, the, the benefits this without specific authorization, the benefits and emoluments of of uh, federal employment or reserve for appointees. So we're making a pay-specific argument. That's the tradition we're talking about here. There may be other traditions like anti-discrimination um, where the result is different. I would say in the FMLA case, you know, that's, that's importing a definition from the FLSA. I think the analysis there should be the same. and I can't speak to why the government didn't pursue um, this argument there, but I, I, with, without having dug into the details, it seems like that would be a prima facie case where you know, that would be available to the government.
3: But again, all those strong traditions of appointment for um, federal appointment for federal employment, that's, that's um, absent specific legislation. Sure, that's right. And, and our,
4: our bottom line position is that the FLSA was not – it was specific legislation in terms of so, – so
0: Just about pay for federal employees.
4: Just backing up for a second, I think there Maybe. are two types, of, <laughs> two types of legislation. There's creating an employment relationship – there's legislation that creates an employment relationship. And there's legislation that decides what the benefits of employment are. Um, our, our submission is that the FLSA falls into the latter category, not the former category. And if it were extending the, the, the employment relationship to, to a new to a new area in federal law, then we are arguing um, you'd expect something much clearer from Congress indicating that.
0: And and do you think what, what do you think the consequence for? Um, I, I think I, I got a, an answer from uh, Mr. Holcomb that – or Whitcomb that um, surprised me a little bit, um, that if Mr. Uh, Lambro was a federal employee under the FLSA, I think he said, well, he'd be a federal employee for kind of all purposes. Um, is, I assume yeah, – what's your view about
4: that? Yeah, we disagree with that. He, he, uh, uh, he's, oh, he's only bringing FLSA claims. You can be employee under the FLSA – without being an employee for other purposes. And the FLSA
0: 203 starts something like, you know, within this section, these things meet. So it has the equivalent of Title Vs for purposes of Title V um, introductory
4: language. Right.
2: So, and by analogy
0: – Which then suggests maybe the consequences here aren't
4: so dramatic. I don't I don't agree with that. I mean, the, the, the consequences of um, – you know, the, the FLSA has pretty severe financial penalties in terms of um, you know, mandatory overtime violations – um, that, that could apply to a class of employees of individuals um, that we it's uh, really hard to quantify I don't think um, I'm not aware of any attempt to quantify how many individuals are out there that would fit into this into this bucket um,
0: and do you have you made I don't remember do you have you made an argument that the broad but um, multi-factor somewhat imprecise FLSA standards for what it means to, to employ um, uh, are problematic precisely because they're imprecise? Um, that this is, you're not going to know for any number of, of um, non-personal service contractors whether they meet the economic realities test or not, and that's very troublesome.
4: I don't think we've... We we, we have not argued that in this case. Um, this court s- s- said that to some extent in the Seon Lee case, um, talked about the fuzziness and the sort of... You know, the difficulties it presents for plaintiffs who later come back and try to invalidate the contracts, we haven't really made an argument along those lines. Um, we also aren't conceding that Mr. Lambrough necessarily, you know, would prevail on this issue ultimately. Obviously, this is at the motion dismiss right. stage.
1: But,
0: right, but it could be an issue about how much you're going to have to litigate <coughs> and what decisions right. you're going to make in the face of uncertainty. But We right. haven't really presented an argument like that. That's right. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, we should hear. Rebuttal and um, what do we say? Five minutes, and we'll see how it goes.
1: Thank you, Capulisius um, Court. Um, I wanted to go sort of in reverse chronological order from what uh, Mr. Carhart was talking about, which is, you know, I think first. I don't went back and reread our complaint, but just sort of refreshing my memory on this. So, we, our allegation is pretty um, succinct, and that is, we even go as far as qualifying in our complaint. We argue he should have been an employee versus a contractor, and that he was, de- and that he was deprived of uh, overtime. Sorry,
0: can I just ask? Um, don't you have to be making the argument that he actually was an employee?
1: Yes. Okay. That's what that's so what that's what we argue. is not – well, you know, we're, we're arguing that, that that's he a sh- way of saying right he there.
0: wasn't, but he sure should have been. Okay,
1: I think by the government's, I think what we're trying to do, and, and you're right, Your Honor, we're trying to answer the government's argument that hey, he's not afforded FLSA protections because he wasn't an employee, and we're arguing that you don't get to sidestep the benefits of FLSA by simply withholding by simply withholding an appointment, you don't unilaterally withholding an appointment, or with unilaterally withholding things. I mean. That same document that the two of you were discussing about um, the the PSC, it pointed to the fact that the agency had a limited number a limited allocation of personal services contracts that it could dole out. It had already exceeded those. So it didn't really have the PSC mechanism um, at the time. It it will argue, I think, intelligently that also at the time it didn't have – there was a a hiring freeze and a limit on the number of of people it could have been appointed. And I was anticipating an argument that said, hey, our hands were tied. We needed these people to do the work. We had no other choice but to use the procurement route and and create individual contracts with Mr. Lamborough and and those like him. And, And we addressed that in both our complaint and in our argument here, which is that there was another mechanism. They simply could have competed this doc, this thing out on on, on FedBizOps or FBO and, and gotten one or two contractors. You know, every
0: time you go down this line, I my mind goes to I don't know how that bears on the only question we have to decide: Was Mr. Lambro an employee under 203G? Our,
1: our position is absolutely, okay. absolutely, he was an employee. What we're trying to get to, what we're trying to, what I'm trying to use to help to aid the court, is to point to the – So, maybe,
0: I mean, maybe this has something to do with willfulness or That's something. right. The but willfulness the, the in the government's – question, question doesn't have anything to do with – does it – with whether uh, – the, the very threshold question, um, namely, um, does he – do we even reach the question of qualification under 203G? Maybe, and the economic reality says, I don't remember whether the kinds of considerations that you are alluding to might affect the answer to the question whether once we're applying those standards, whether you're in or you're in or you're out. But the rest, I mean, we're not there yet.
1: So thank you, Your Honor. Um, to the first point, as, as defined we our argument and I think it's unequivocal and clear all over our pleadings and in our, our arguments to this court, Mr. Lambro and those like him qualified as employees under the FLSA because he was suffered to work, period. He was he was allowed to work. That's the that's the end of that <laughs> inquiry. Then what the your specific
2: response to the government's argument that um section two oh three points to look at title five. I just want kind of your Short response to that. I mean,
1: the short response is: I think the same one that Jackson gives us, which is it, the Title Five makes Jackson gives a distinction between a federal employee and a, ser, and a and a services member. It doesn't. It it stays clear of making a distinction between a federal employee and a contractor. Actually, goes to pains to make that distinction. It simply says that that Title V carves out military members from federal employees, and therefore. Uh, uh, Title Seven doesn't apply to them. FLSA doesn't do that. Um, no other, and and they are clearly defined. I mean, Mr. The Lambert LSA
0: does carve out civilian uh, uniform members.
1: Right, but again, to this court's point, which I was arguing earlier, it's it's above the definition of employee. I mean, in, in basic statutory construction, right? We go we we read the document. The 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 definition that applies before the carve out. Or, I'm sorry, after the carve out applies to everything before it. An employee is defined as someone who, who, who works or, uh, who is suffered to work. And that's in G, that's below the definition that, or what the court alludes to and the government alludes to as this carve out. It doesn't, and again, to Mr. Carhart's argument, well the government, the Congress could have. Well certainly Congress could have, if it wanted to, to, it could have created a carve out in the FLSA that says government employees, unless appointed, are not afforded these protections. It didn't do that. It simply said it, it relied on the definition of an employee which is suffered to work, which falls below the carve-out that the court has described.
3: Okay. Thank
0: you for that argument. Thanks to all counsel. The case is submitted.